The fool may think he's a wise man, but the wise man knows what a fool he's been. I'm Paul Falcone, and welcome to the Pro Fools Podcast. I'm joined by Greg Thompson, Dasan Broadnax, and Tim McGrath. The Pro Fools Podcast is brought to you by The Residence Studios. The Residence Studios is a destination studio located in central Long Island, one hour from Manhattan, one hour to the Hamptons. We offer a state-of-the-art recording and mixing studio, photo and video facilities with hotel-like amenities, five minutes from the beach and minutes away from Long Island's major attractions. Contact us at theresidencestudios at gmail.com or Instagram at theresidencestudios. Welcome to the podcast. Uh Episode three here. My name is Tim McGrath. I'm joined by Greg Thompson, Desan Broadnax, and Paul Falcone. What's up, guys? What's been going on lately? What's going on, Tim? Hey, Desan. What's uh? I know you had something going on last weekend. It was uh, it's kind of a holiday for some people. You had a concert. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, I did. Uh, we played a show. We rented out this venue called the Living Gallery in Brooklyn, and then we had a show there. It was pretty good. A lot of people showed up. We had a pretty good turnout. People had fun. And then I ended up actually not expecting that I was going to sort of be the sound guy all night, but that's what ended up happening in the, in the end. So I was kind of working board and then also like the computer and all that other sort of stuff and like doing the mix in between sets and running my sound and everybody else's so it was, it was pretty cool though it went, went well in the end that's good that's what happens when they find out what you do yeah it's just like i mean it was really my friend was supposed to kind of like run all the sound for everybody's set and he had like everybody's music on his laptop and then like an idiot he forgot his charger at home so his laptop was about to die and I, and I had to take over everything but it was like it was whatever it was it was stressful but Afterward, I was like, okay, that was cool. It was fun. That's funny. Good to hear. Yeah, Paul, what's going on with you? You're busy. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty hectic lately. Uh, most notable thing I've done recently is I spoke at Hofstra on the music industry, music and entertainment industry student association. Uh, like they do a three-day seminar or a three-day conference, uh, rather. And I spoke on the record production panel. And I had a blast. Uh, it was an hour-long panel. The students asked some really great, great questions. What was so interesting about it to me was they asked a lot of the questions that we covered in the first and second episodes. I felt like I was repeating a lot of the information that we talked about. I, of course, told them to check out the podcast. Uh, and it just reinforced you know, how people have uh, you know, questions about the stuff that we're talking about. And uh, it was very reassuring. Uh, it, was, it was a great panel. The, the other members that were on the panel were really great to speak with. They had some really great perspectives uh, onto the questions that were asked. And more than anything, I really enjoyed interacting with the students. Great. And Greg, what's going on? Paul was uh, wanted to hear about your Instagram post yeah, the other day. tell us about that picture. So this past week, I spent uh, the early part of the week, three days, down at uh, a very large software company who happens to have installed a television studio in their facilities, but they actually don't crew it with staff people because they don't uh, they don't do enough live uh, broadcasts to to warrant their own crew. So uh, I got hired through a buddy of mine. He has a company called Crew One TV for all your audio video needs. Uh, give a shout out! Give a shout out to Dino at uh, Crew One TV uh, and. 
We, uh, we put on some, uh, some live webcasts that went uh, worldwide for the company. And then we did spend a day uh, recording something to video that they'll edit later and then they'll put out as some sort of a, a press brochure. Very cool. All right. And what's, what's going on at Eastman? You guys been, it's opera season? Uh, opera season was the, uh, ended at the beginning of this month. Uh, we did um, four shows uh, of Don Giovanni. And I have the score over there. It's about 300 pages. The show itself was about about two and a half hours long, uh, and that was a bit of a challenge because uh, we went with um, close miking for all our talent, uh, which in the past we've always done area miking where you put mics on the floor, you hide them in the set, or whatever. And but when you're doing that, you're mixing. Uh, I, guess, I guess the term is catch as catch can, because if a person turns away from a mic. If a person turns away from a mic, you've got nothing. So <laughs> it really sucks as as an operator. And so we've gone to basically lavaliers in their in their wigs. Um, that makes it a lot easier, except that it's a challenge because now you should only turn on the mics that need to be used and as much as you need them. Uh, whereas the area miking was a little easier. Uh, football analogy is the difference between a zone defense and a man-to-man -man defense. And you definitely don't want to open a mic when someone's off stage. I did a bunch of research and came up with a, uh, uh, I found a piece of software that works directly with the console that we were using that assigns, it changes the DCA. You, is everybody familiar with a DCA or digital control amp? It's, uh, it's based off of a VCA, voltage controlled amp. Uh, and it's usually in the center section of your console, so you can control things that are off to the sides uh, right from the center. And what this software does is, uh, as you go through the cues one by one, I actually posted that as an Instagram posting of my cues. As you go through the cues, it changes the, the DCA assignments. As, you go, as I'm following through the score, you know, turning the pages, following the score, you'll have a scene where... Uh, you know, there's only going to be certain people on stage. And when I set those people to the DCAs, only their mics will open up and everyone else's mics will stay muted. Um, so as long as everybody follows the score, it's real easy. That's great. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, you know, essentially automated cues for a, a live show. Exactly. And the real theater people, I've, I've had the experience uh, of working with a lot of theater folks at The View and at Good Morning America where they bring... You know, they bring their folks on to do their one big tune or something like that. And I usually have the the the, uh, the theater mixer sitting with me in the control room. And these people know the score and know their singers inside out. And they, uh, you know, they'll be they, like... They, they're, oh, also with, they're, they, they're also with them, what, 10 shows a week? Yeah, something like that. And they, they tend to have several weeks of pre-production before the show goes live. And so they've, they've literally got the show. They're still following along on the score, but they almost com have the score completely memorized. Um, and they've, I've had a lot of them show me, uh, you know, how they go about doing things. And, uh, and it makes it a lot easier. Uh, when, when you find out how the pros do it, you know, steal their tricks. And use them for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Hey, so while we're on the topic of, uh, I mean, 
uh, opera is not exactly orchestra, but one thing that I did mention on the last podcast was uh, when recording an orchestra, and I talked about you know using trans- stuff like transformer-based mic pre's or mics with some character, and we were talking later after the show, and it is true, you were speaking more of the perspective of you know, people that are recording an orchestra in a more classical setting. I guess I, I, I sort of misspoke and was speaking more of recording an orchestra in a pop setting. And you brought up the point of people that, uh, you know, even a place like Eastman, that they're doing it more legit classical. And you were saying? Yeah, I remember doing several sessions, uh, both at Eastman and at, and at Hit Factory, where you'd have people that, you know, wanted anything but color. They want to hear... They want the recording process to be as transparent as possible. They only want to hear the orchestra, and they only want to hear the room, and they absolutely do not want to hear the microphone or the, you know, the compressor, the transformer, the mic pre, that stuff. They don't want to hear. And as a result, for example, at Eastman, a lot of our microphones are Sheps, and our preamps are Millennia. And those things, you know, they're extremely accurate and extremely transparent. Uh, and would you say flat? Because uh, I, I, well, I, 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 yes. Uh, if you look at a B and K or a, a DPA uh, um, forty eleven, you'll see it's got a slight bump. You know, at like ten or twelve K. Our mic closet is is a lot of the same mics that we had at Hit Factory, but you know, you're not going to see someone pulling out a U forty seven. Um, on the orchestra, you're going to see someone pulling out, you know, the the 414s are going to come out, the CMCs are going to come out, the KM140s, the Neumann KM140s are going to come out. Um, You know, you're going to find a lot more of that stuff, and you're not going to find as many, you know, U87s, um, things like that. What about stuff like, uh, what about stuff like filtering? Do they do much, like, high-pass I do a ton of it because that's that's the only way I get uh, isolation, really. Uh, Personally, when I'm working with the stuff, I'm doing high-pass and low-pass filtering to kind of, you know, so that my area mic is picking up what I want in the area. Um, Once you decide, you're you're either going to lean on your main, you know, pair or a decatry or maybe you're doing decatry and outriggers. You're either leaning on those for your overall balance or it just it goes the other way because as soon as you start bringing up a couple of close mics, next thing you know, it's all close mics. It's just it's just the the nature of the beast. Not to interrupt you, yeah, because I know a lot of people just heard you say decatry. Uh huh. What's a decatry? A decatry is three omnidirectional microphones, uh, equidistant in a I believe it's an equilateral triangle, uh, and it's placed. Um, just about over the ensemble. Often a, an ensemble will have be set up like in a semicircle, and it's basically over the conductor's head. And in a proper decatry, um, your microphones are actually sort of cardioid at lower frequencies and omni at high... No, no, no. I've got that backwards. They're omni at lower frequencies, and as the frequencies get higher, the microphones get more and more... Uh, directional and the best mics for those are m50s uh neumann m50s um but uh you know we tend to just use the sheps uh cmcs uh you can get away with it with uh with cardioid mics um 
I did a, a scoring session with uh, a very well-renowned uh, scoring engineer, and he did the uh, the decatry with TLM 170s and cardioid. So remember, remember back in the day when we used to do string sessions at the Hit. Mm-hmm. We used to do a lot of pop stuff, yeah. and uh, I, I threw up C800 Gs for oh, somebody. Yeah? Oh would, yeah, because you used to get a lot of engineers that would come in and do the session, and like we were used to doing yeah. string sessions all the time. So they would ask us to what to do for the mic list. Yeah. So we had just gotten the C800, so I was like, oh, oh they were great. C800 Gs. That's basically <laughs> just funny. That's three low noise U47s. I, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, and, you know, I was going to say one other thing about, you know, the classical folks. Like, you know how we would often mic the piano, especially on a pop session or a Broadway session, where you'd get, you know, like maybe you'd put a C24 right inside the body of the piano. Like, you know, you get in there, you know, six inches off the off the soundboard in an XY pattern or something, and, and you've got the mic just crammed in there. Maybe you're throwing a, a blanket over it or something. And then I did a, a Steve Reich recording, and they didn't even get beyond the lid. You know, they were they were you know this far back from the outside of the lid, up about you know, basically following the plane of the top of the lid. I think so that they wouldn't get any reflections off the top. With a pair of, with a pair of uh, B and Ks, uh, they were probably the Omnis. I love that perspective of recording a piano too. Because I, I think the natural reaction is to do X, Y over the hammers, you know, especially on a grand piano, especially talking about like just like the regular rock and pop sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the further you get away from the hammers, the less mechanical noise you have of the piano. And the more it sounds like you're used to hearing what a piano actually sounds like. You're not yeah. used to hearing a piano with your head stuck in it right. up, against, up against the hammers. But so many records I, have that ultra, ultra unreal wide piano sound. And that was a funny thing. I tried a bunch of different things with Campo's piano, and it it was a finicky piano that only liked to be recorded one way. We had one pair of mics that worked pretty much every time, and you, you set them up in an XY over middle C. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, you know, at Eastman, I was doing, I did a couple of jazz recordings. Um, I, I got one up on my, on my Pro Tools over there. Uh, over the course of a couple of different weekends, and one of them, you know, I had four 14s inside the piano, kind of doing a low-high thing, uh, and it sounded good, and I was happy with it, and of course, like, part of the thing that I'm dealing with is the fact that there's a drum kit, uh, you know, 10 feet away, blowing right into the same piano, so it's like, I need to get more piano, I need to get more piano than drums in these mics, how do I do it? Um, and then I was talking with one of my colleagues who said, well, why don't you try, why don't you try the DPA or he was going to go with the Sheps. And I said, I don't know if I like the Sheps. I, I the DPA is the, the DPA, uh, we have the 4011Cs. The microphone itself is only about that big. Uh, and you can actually, they have, uh, magnetic mounts. You can put them inside the piano and, and mount them to the, to the frame. But I just put them on a, on an XY and 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 put them in you know because you know hey look two of these recitals are actual piano recitals so instead of having that hyper realism let's treat it like the real instrument that it is and um and stay away from the hammers so that you have uh 
you know, sort of the, uh, the, the ideal sound of less mechanical sound. And with it being X, Y out of the piano, um, you're picking up the overall piano sound and you're kind of, you know, you're still facing the, the dead side of the microphones towards the drums. Going off that, I was wondering, how does your approach basically change if you're recording jazz versus, say, rock, but the same instrument, instruments being used? I guess the first thing you say is, it depends. How does this person play? Because, for example, I recorded three recitals in a day, uh, and I had three different piano players, and I had the same mic, same piano, same spot, three completely different piano tones, and that was tone was in the fingers. Now, if I'm doing a session, I'm, I'm the guy that will change the, the positioning and the choice of mics four times, like, over the course of ten minutes, where, you know, I'll... I'll I'll hear them play, and I'll hear something, and I'll run out there, and I'll move the mics, and then I'll hear them play, and hear, and, I, and I'll just like, oh, you know what I want? And, then, and, you know, I'll go from a coincident pair to a split pair to, you know what, let me try a pencil mic instead of a, a, a big condenser or vice versa. I'll switch that stuff up like, like that. If, if I can ever get away with it, I will always put packing blankets over the piano to try and keep the other instruments out. Paul, would you say from like a pop or R&B standpoint that those two, your process or your approach of recording is going to be similar? I would say similar. I mean, for, you know, the, on, a, on a grand piano, naturally, I, I'm going to put that XY over the hammers or it's not really over the hammers. It's XY over the soundboard. The most natural place to do it is right over the hammers. What I have found in recent times is you can get that XY pair almost anywhere in the soundboard, like a lot of times now I'll back it up. If like, here's the hammers on the piano, I'll back it up about three feet towards the middle of the soundboard to get away from that mechanical noise. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times with older pianos, especially the piano itself will be rather creaky. So <laughs> I, I've dealt with players that are used to dealing with, you know, mostly sampled pianos that they play. So as, as soon as they sit down and start to record a real piano, they get freaked out over all the sounds that the piano is actually making. Uh, you know, so, First of all, we're talking about recording pianos. The first thing you got to do is make sure your piano is tuned. I mean, I know Greg knows this as well as, well as I do. That's one step that I think people uh, tend to, to miss uh, maybe recording at home is if you are going to record your piano, that piano should be tuned. Uh, when we do sessions, and I know when, you know, I'm sure when you do uh, live shows, those pianos get tuned right before the show. If you're going to do an actual, if you're going to book a recording studio and you're going to be recording piano at a recording studio, first thing is to do is to get a piano tuner in that day mm -hmm. to record, to tune the piano before the session. Uh, if you're going to be recording piano every day for a week, you might have a tuner come in every morning to, to tune the piano again. We have had problems with uh, tuning slip if the piano hasn't been tuned in a while, tune it a week out and then have, uh, you know, play it a little bit or a lot of it and then have it tuned, you know, day of session where, where it, it has a chance to, to kind of settle in. Yeah. I've gotten recordings before the piano isn't tuned and it's, yeah. you know, that is, that's a difficult thing. That's a difficult thing to deal with. Uh, it seems obvious, you know. It seems uh, obvious, but it's also if someone's recording at home, they may not do that. They may, yeah. and you know, it's okay to record an out of tune piano if you want an out of tune piano on your recording. But if you're going for that legit piano sound, and if you want it to sound like a real pop record, that piano's got to be tuned because it was most likely tuned on 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 a pop record. Sure. Um, so a lot of times it's it's some some sort of X Y pair to get that that stereoness. Then a mic in the back, sort of like a, a you know like a cardioid like large diaphragm cardioid over the 
over the low strings of the piano, and I'll stick a I'll stick a mic underneath the piano, knock it out of phase, and get it right up against the bottom of the soundboard. And I don't always use that mic. I just put it there and I listen to it each time. Sometimes it's kind of unusable. It depends on the piano. Sometimes you need it. Sometimes you don't. It's just an option to me to have. It's sort of almost under, right underneath the grand piano on the bottom side of the soundboard. Knock it out of phase. It's almost, uh, it's almost at the same position as the mic in the, at the back of the piano would be. I was just going to ask, what, what kind of tone is that going to give off, that one on the bottom? You know, it's just a, a mono, to me, it gets more of the low frequencies. I don't know if that's entirely true. It definitely gets less of the, the hammer noise. To me, it sounds, it's a, not, it's a little bit darker. I don't even want to say darker. It's just it's not as, as bright as the, as the XY pair is going to be. It's a little bit fuller sounding and not as sort of bright and edgy as the XY typically is. So you would use that, well, when you do use it, you'd kind of use it to like fill in yes. the rest if yes. there's kind of a little bit of body missing or something like that. Yep. With, the, with that bottom mic and knocking it out of phase, actually, you know what that's useful for is if you're in a tracking session and, and you've got something like bass in the room that's, that's muddying up your piano, is you do that and next thing you know, when I say it's muddying up, you're, you're picking up that bass or, or maybe the bottom end of a guitar in, you're picking that up in your piano mics, uh, you know, because you're getting bleed. You put that bottom mic in and you knock it out of phase, and that actually is also going to knock out that that bleed of the of the bass. So it'll it'll help clean you up in a in a tracking session. Got it. Sure. The, the last thing I would want to say about pianos. This is something I found out maybe three years ago, and it took me my entire career to figure this one out. Is the way to get rid of that mechanical noise on a grand piano is to use an upright grand instead of like the traditional grand piano. Get an upright grand, one of those really, really tall upright yeah. pianos, and the soundboard is facing the back of the piano. So you have to mic the back of the piano, and you get all the sound that you would typically get for a, a grand piano, but you don't get any of the mechanical noise because you're not facing the hammers. That was like, mind-blowing to me. Hmm. But that to me sounds just like miking the piano from the bottom. No, but 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 a, 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 an upright piano, the soundboard that the, the sound is coming out of the back of that piano. So if you're miking that soundboard, if it's a very tall, if if it's an upright grand, if it's a tall, not I'm not talking one of those like uh, spinet type you know uprights, one of those giant you know uh, you know upright pianos. You know you mic the back of that thing, it sounds like a grand piano, but you get no hammer noise, you get no mechanical noise. That was mind-blowing to me. That was only th maybe three or four years ago. There's a studio that has an upright grand, and I threw mics on the back, and I was like, holy shit, that's the <laughs> trick. A friend of mine in town has been looking to add a piano to his, his setup, and I've been suggesting to him to, to keep an eye out for a, a full upright grand. Uh, that way it doesn't, you know, it doesn't waste floor space in his studio, and it's still got that good grand piano sound. The sound, what are you going to say? I just said that's cool. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that was <laughs> I was going to go into a quick side story. Paul reminded me just tuning. Like, obviously, it's obvious. But um, I someone told me, it might not even be true, that uh, Fleetwood Mac, they were doing a song, and I guess it was Lindsey Buckingham. He Every time he recorded the guitar, every take he did, he had to put new strings on the guitar because <laughs> it didn't sound right. He just needed that sound of having new strings on the guitar, just retuning it every single, not even just retuning it, just putting new strings on every single take. 
That sounds to me like something you would have done on a uh, on a on a Def Leppard recording with with Mutt Lang. You know, here's here's what I would say. That that, that sounds like the stuff that urban legends are made of. But I will tell you this: that a guitar with brand new strings sounds different than a guitar with worn strings. Yeah. Oh, Oh, and I mean, like an hour in. Like the strings an yeah. hour in sound different from like completely fresh. So yeah. if they were really if if they were really trying to go for a specific sound and match that tone each time, then potentially that is what it took. Yeah, yeah, it could have it could have been true. Who knows? Usually people aren't going after a sound like that though, right? I think that speaks to letting it get, you know, worn into the way it's going to be more consistent. You know, because like like we're talking about, if you're going to have a guitar that's got brand new strings, it's going to sound like a guitar brand new strings. If you play it for a little bit of time, it's going to sound like it sounds worn in much longer than it's going to sound like when it sounds like it's 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 fresh. I'm pretty sure the artist Mac DeMarco he actually records his music and then he detunes it when he's in his recording process to get, and it gives him a unique sound. So it's, a, it's pretty cool. It's things don't have to be perfectly in tune for them to be right. And yeah. I, I've worked with guitarists. I can't remember the, his name. He was like an older dude and he would, int- of course he would intentionally tune his guitar slightly out to get, make it a little bit funkier sounding. Hmm. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. What are you going to say, Greg? With respect to uh, the brightness of, of new strings, I find that they have an initial extreme brightness that's almost like unusable, and then they kind of get to this middle place for almost like a week or two, uh, depending on the, the quality of the sweat and then the cleanliness of the hands of the guitar player. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you have a, a greasy pizza and you play those guitars <laughs> right after, I mean, they're just going to go dark like immediately. Uh, and then after that, you know, it, it enters like this other zone of like, it's kind of dead, but it's not totally dead. And then you've got, you know, the strings that sound like they haven't been changed in 20 years. And and those are also, you know, that's a useful tone. I was thinking back to the last podcast and uh, we kind of... We're talking about uh, we're talking about uh, effects and plugins and go-to plugins. Yeah, man. Yeah, we took a we took a dive into it and it got deeper and deeper and uh, it was a good conversation and uh, you know I kind of think there's a lot more to talk about let's, still. Let's go back to your list. Yeah. So last time, last show, I kind of talked about an article I found. The only seven plugins you'll ever need, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we're we we're kind of going through. A lot of the common ones. Now, the first thing I got to say is that that I agree with that list, uh, and and what it reminds me of is the, the most basic pieces of outboard that you're going to use, and it sort of reminded me of like an SSL channel strip, almost the way you know we were talking we were talking about them, or any console for that matter, you know any any console that has built-in you know uh, dynamic section. Uh, and, you know, when you're talking about the effects, like reverbs and delays, that's what's mm-hmm. on your sense. Let's see. The first one is gain uh, in Pro Tools. Sure. So gain. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, that's, that's a good one. So if you're going to equate that to what's on, what's on an analog console, that's your line trim. And what the gain is going to do is if you have a track that's recorded too low, you're going to bring it up to a proper level so you can actually process it in your plugins. Uh, yeah, you can do that with clip gain in Pro Tools. You could simply, uh, if take the first you know plugin that you have in the chain and raise the input there. I've certainly dealt with tracks recently, like people will buy beats off YouTube and those stems come in ridiculously low. And the first thing I have to do is bump all those stems up to an acceptable level so I can start working with them. Uh, and that's using something like clip gain. That's interesting because usually I find when people 
come to me with beats from YouTube. They're just blown out, like and compressed to death. Do you but, mean yeah, you I mean the stems? You mean the actual stems of the beat? Never stems. Like people just have the actual, like the whole beat. Or well, that, that it, the, the two track is, is essentially going to be mastered though. That's going to be squashed. I mean, when 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 they actually buy the beat from YouTube. And they get the stems, and they get the stems sent to them. The YouTube video that they that made them buy it is going to be mastered, and is going to be nice and loud. A lot of times, those for whatever reason, those stems come in ridiculously low. Uh, and the first thing I first thing I got to do is gain those stems up so I can actually start working with them. So my compressor threshold isn't at like minus sixty dB. It's more like minus ten, minus twenty, minus thirty. And, you know, it isn't reading incredibly low. You know, you don't want to be working at a very low level. You're essentially not using up all the bits. Uh, in digital audio, you're you're you know you're making a very very low resolution recording when you when you're working with very very low resolution audio when it's that low. You're not using up all the bits in the the mixer of say Pro Tools or Logic or whatever it may be. I just wanted to add with uh with clip gain or like even well I actually have like two kind of examples, but uh, clip gain super useful for I don't know if you guys do this, but for like vocals, um. If you're if you don't have a setup like Paul, where you're sort of like you've got a compressor on the front end of it, and you're kind of like by yourself recording, um, it's natural that you're going to be like really all over the place in in terms of dynamics. So um, someone at SAE kind of like I was showing him one of my recordings, and he was like, "Yeah, just go ahead and like chop." the whole performance to death or whatever um or if i have you know different performances just create the comp chop it up and then just sort of clip gain everything so it's within like the same range so that when i'm running it into the compressor it's just like having i mean it's not the same as having a compressor on the front end but it kind of creates that same effect where you like you are limiting the dynamic range you, you're limiting the dynamic range of the overall recording i mean it's not compression but you are you are you are you know you are you know, lessening the dynamic range of that recording. I'll take that a step further to say that when I'm cutting vocals, I'm using clip gain to make sure that the vocal is going to stay within a specific range before it hits the compressor. And that is, that is a great point you bring up in that when you when you are mixing and you do set that compressor for your vocal, you know, that compressor is going to sound different if all of a sudden now the vocal that's hitting it is too low. And that's that's not a, that's not really a new trick. If you were mixing on an analog desk and say you had your vocal on a couple of channels, you might take those channels so they're no longer hitting the stereo bus, send them to a multi-track bus, and then take that multi-track bus and send it to your, your mixing chain. So that would be your you know, vocal EQ, vocal compressor. And now you're automating those faders that are sending to the compressor and the EQ to essentially do something like the clip gain that you're doing. Because you do want your tracks to be, to your raw tracks to be consistent before they get into your, you're mixing, you know, compression and EQ because if all of a sudden this, if you have this vocal and you have this, you know, killer compression sound and it sounds really great on the vocal, now the vocal gets a little bit too low, you've lost that cool compression sound. It's no longer doing the same thing. You've got to bring those levels up so they get mixed properly. But yeah, that's that's a good point. And then another thing, because then um. Like in uh in Logic they have and I'm pretty sure on Pro Tools too they just have different from Clip Gain they have the literal gain plugin, um and I've used that because I had this one track that was just a, a complete mess I sort of like I dealt with it in a really strange way where I had all these automation lines like volume automation lines running throughout multiple tracks on this song, um and then like by the end of it everything was like way too hot at one point. So I ended up slapping a gain 
plugin on every single channel and then using that to kind of drop the levels of everything so I could get it to a place where I could like actually mix the thing. Um, but yeah, that that's another plugin like super useful for like a weird application of that. that I wouldn't even say that's a weird application. Uh, to me, that's just like the line trim on a console. You, you, you're setting it, you're, you're setting the most you know basic level of your channel up so it, you can use it at a, at a workable level. I hate to say, you know, back in the day when we used to do this stuff, but when you think about clip gain, when we would do a uh, a vocal comp, you would often ride the fader into the vocal comp. So as you're punching, when, when we're talking about a vocal comp, we're talking about taking six or eight channels and we're bouncing them, the, the choices from those over to a new channel. You would make sure that that comp sounded as good as it could be and and that was and and a lot of that was keeping those levels optimized uh, for the analog tape, which is no different than optimizing your levels, you know, to feed a compressor. To kind of go back to what you're saying, and maybe to sort of like put a, put a bow on this to a certain extent, is that I think what we're all kind of saying is, you know, the the fader is the is the last point of gain in your channel. So sometimes you want to change the gain. Before all the before it hits all the plugins, like automating the fader is not the same thing as automating the gain on the input side of the channel. You know, you want to you want to make you want to change the gain of the signal before it gets to all the plugins. That fader is after it gets to all the plugins or or all the outboard gear. That is that is your last point of gain before it hits the stereo bus. Yeah, and I I think we we stepped on we touched on it before where your your plugins. And even, you know, when we're talking analog equipment, all your equipment has a sweet spot that it likes to operate in. And, and where your thresholds for whatever you're working with, they're all the most sensitive for. And you want to be in that sweet spot. And clip gain or your line trim or any, any kind of trim at your front end is getting you to that sweet spot. And as an aside... I would, uh, talking about the opera that I was doing uh, a couple weeks ago, I actually had them turn down the PA about 12 dB at the, they have a, you know, a, a system controller, which has got the feed to all the speaker boxes and all the EQs and whatnot, so that I could drive the front end of my console harder so that I would be into my compressors and DSers and having my faders in the useful zone my PA, you know, I was, I was topping out at maybe 90 decibels. And if, if the PA was, you know, was set wide open with those levels that I had at my console, uh, I mean, we'd have been at 110 dB and everyone would be looking at me funny because that's not how you do opera. What you're saying to me brings up a point. That this is one of my teachers said this to me a million years ago when I was going to a recording school. They were explained it as when you talk about the sweet spot, I'm, what I'm remembering is when they talked about the fader. Like when you're doing rides on a fader, you want that fader to be right around zero dB because that's when you have that's when you have the most control over over that channel. If you're doing vocal rides and your fader is down at say like minus twenty, because it's a logarithmic curve on that fader, when you're barely moving that fader, you're doing very very large dB jumps. Now that's just one example of a sweet spot, and it's sort of like in a sort of an extreme in your face version of it. I, I think what you're talking about more is, you know, there's the, the gear sounds right. First of all, when it's when it's operating at nominal level, if if you're if you're running stuff through a compressor and it's it's you're having to put your threshold so far down to get it to actually compress, that is certainly not the sweet spot of that piece of gear. And on analog gear especially, it's just not going to operate correctly. 
And, you know, then there's other pieces of gear that you just drive them a little bit hard or, you know, at least at least at nominal level, if not a little bit hotter. And they just sound better than if than if you're running very, very low signal through them. So next in the channel. Next in the channel? Yeah. What's, what's, the, what's the next piece? Uh, EQing. EQ. No, 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 no. First, because no. you said gate. Oh. Right? So here's, the, here's what, what I keep thinking about is back in the day of analog tape, that gate was what was was what you used on every single channel. It was probably like one of the most important uh, pieces of processing equipment that you had. And the gate would be essentially turned on on every single channel across the console. That's because we were trying to get rid of tape hiss. Gates are, are generally used for getting rid of noise. And I very rarely pull out a gate in, in the digital world because to get rid of the noise, you just chop out the noise in the region. You know, if you've got, you know, either it, whether it be room tone or whether it be even just hiss like a guitar amp is sitting there going shh, oh, yeah. like in between parts, you're just going to cut that out or mute those mute that part of the region. You're going to separate that region and mute it. And that's sort of the modern gating. But we used to use gates all, all the time. I, I'll use gates to shape the envelope of a sound. Say there's a snare that's a little bit too long and I want that snare to be quicker, then I'll throw a gate on that snare to make the snare shorter or make the kick, if the kick has too much decay, I'm going to shape the decay of the kick with a gate. gate. But gates are way, way less important than they used to be, at least as far as getting rid of noise, uh, which is something we used to have to use them for all the time. You know, and, and when you're using analog gear, I'd say gates, gates become more important. Uh, some of these modeled plugins that will hiss Sometimes I got to throw a gate at the end of the chain because to get rid of the hiss from the modeled plugins because they're emulating analog gear. And then it always cracks me up. I remember I was working on this thing recently and I could not believe how much hiss was coming off the, the Pro Tools mixer just sitting, just I mean, when nothing was playing. And it totally reminded me in the days of using, you know, like a ton of outboard gear on an analog console and you had to throw that gate across everything to get rid of all that hiss. Yeah, I, when I was plugging, I think I mentioned this last time when I was plugging directly into my interface. That's how I would try to get rid of the noise. A gate? Uh, yeah. Mm. And, uh, eh. yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, in, in, in 2019, I, I think that to get rid of noise on tracks, you're more just chopping that shit out. Mm. You're either muting, you're muting that piece of the region, or you're just literally just deleting it right out. Sure. I mean, gates are cool for other things. I mean, they're, they're great for shaping the envelope. They're cool when you, maybe you trigger them with something else. There's like kind of a, you know, when you, when you trigger, you know, but, that, but that's a triggered gate effect. That's, that's talking about something totally different. Yeah. So using them like stylistically, like you mentioned, I think it was in the first episode, you mentioned that trick where you put like, um, you have like a tone generator and then you like doing the side chain technique. And then also there's a similar thing where you can do like, you can have like a snare or something and then have like um, a gate with like a reverb. And then like, you know, you can have it you know, yeah. like on that sort of stuff. But that's like the only kind of thing I'd use a gate for these days. Like I, unless, I mean, if I was recording like a a band or something like that i could see why it would be useful um for certain things like using a gate on like some drums or something like that or a, a drum track where you have like overheads or something um you might want to use a gate for certain things but like in the box is most of what i'm doing so i never really need it I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's something like uh putting putting a gate across the room mics and then triggering that gate with the kick and snare so the room mics only open on the kick and snare it's kind of an interesting thing to do but again it's using gates more creatively than they are using it more utilitarian hmm 
Interesting. Uh, I tend to use the gates like you were talking about with the uh, uh, with the release time and whatnot. And we spoke talking about transient designers and and kind of nobody in the room or in in the chat here was like none of us were using transient designers. But I tend to use you know the combination of compression, expansion, and gating. I use those all basically as my own transient designer. You know, you want to compress the front end and and ex and ex and ex you know, expand the back end, uh, you know, with your compressor, or you want to, you know, you want to have a, a, a slow attack on a compressor and then have a, have a gate that closes down and, and, you know, you, you can take a, a bass drum to go from to boom, all just with shaping with, uh, with, uh, compressors and gates. The only person I know that uses a transient designer effectively, we got to get him on the podcast one day is Pete. Oh, and yeah. he'll use it uh, to like he was showing me stuff where he would change the ring of the snare, like to take a ringy snare and make it not ringy, or mm -hmm. to make a snare that wasn't so ringy to really bring out the ring in the snare. That was something yeah. he was really into. That uh, we'll have to get him to chime in one day. So what's next on the line? Well, because uh, when you started going through this list, I start I started thinking of a channel strip. Uh, uh. I mean, well, yeah. You go next. I mean, to me, in a channel strip, I mean, what would come right after the gate? Sometimes before the gate, you're going to put filtering. You know, which is part of the EQ, but we're now we're talking about low pass or high pass. Mm. Depending on the type of gating you would be doing, you if if there's a ton of low frequencies on a sound, those low, low frequencies aren't supposed to be there. You want the filters to be the first thing in that chain because you want to get rid of those low frequencies that aren't supposed to be there before you start any of your processing. You know, if if you've got a bunch of if for some reason there's a bunch of low frequencies on your snare track, say you, when you're recording a snare, get rid of those low frequencies first. Otherwise, your gate, your compressor, and everything else is reacting to those low frequencies when you don't really want them there to begin with. Hmm. Okay. So, all right, let's talk about limiting. Ooh. But limiting, so, okay, here's, I, I, it's, it's funny, because limiting now, like, when I think limiters, I think that's the last thing you, you put, that's, that is, that, that is, that is, we're talking about the beginning of the chain here, limiting is, is the last thing in your chain, but, so, I'd like to ask you guys this, because I've seen, sometimes sessions will come in, and people will be using limiters on the individual tracks, now, that's something I tell people to shy away from, sometimes I will throw a limiter on a sound if I feel it really needs a limiter, but do you use limiters on, on individual channels? To me, that's more of a master bus thing. It's very, very rare occasion that I use it on an individual channel. Like, say, put a limiter on a kick or a limiter on a snare. Sometimes, but not, not often. Yeah, I don't, I, I've never done it. Why, why would you do that? Sometimes you just, I mean, for me, I just, because sometimes I just want the sound of what that, you know, I, oftentimes it's not, I'm going to pull down the output of that limiter so it's, op, so the, so the level is at a nominal level for what I want to deal with it in the channel, but sometimes I just want the sound of a crushed kick or a crushed snare, or it might even be a synth or a guitar or something. I just want the sound of the limiter more than I'm using it for, again, for utilitarian purposes to bring the level up. I just want it to sound crushed. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, usually I'm just using them on the master bus. Like the, uh, the limiter was like when I was first getting into audio, I had no idea like what a limiter was and it was the one plugin that I had been searching for for so long because when I first started doing audio all my stuff was like really quiet and I was like yep. how are people getting their music so loud like how is this so loud and then I found out about a limiter I was like oh okay so this is how you kind of like get it there 
but then yep. you figure out there's a bunch of stuff you have to do before that. <laughs> like you can't just put a limiter on something, you know, at the very beginning that you're you're working on it because a bunch of things can go wrong. You know, I've done I've done a bit of limiting in my time. You know, a uh, couple of things that I I will do it in broadcast. We have the uh, the McDSP uh, ML four thousand limiter, and I will use that. Um, on the front end, two reasons that I will do this uh, for the music mixing. One is I will, um, you know how they tend to have like an automatic gain makeup? Like if you pull the threshold down 12 dB, it kind of boosts the output 12 dB. Uh, I will do a thing like that where I will I will put my pull my threshold down 12 and, and push my and pull my output down six. Okay, so that and what that does is that buys me 12 dB of headroom. At the front end of my digital board so that if my singer screeches into my board i've got 12 db of headroom uh you know it's it's going to hit my channel strip and it's and it's going to you know it's it's going to fill up the bits on my channel in the desk but i know i have 12 db of headroom on top of that on the way in and then 6 db of headroom on the way out i called it my headroom builder and the other thing that I've done is I have there there have been certain singers that I have worked with in the past that tend to have bad mic technique. They tend to have reverse uh, trombone technique with the microphone, where they'll sing quiet, and then when they get to the loud part, they'll eat the mic. And you're going to get, as you know about the inverse square law. I've got two things working against me. One, they were singing quiet, and then they got twice as loud, and then they went half the distance, half the distance, half the distance. So now you've got something that's 20 dB louder than it was before, and, and my, you know, my mixing fingers might not have the reaction time. So I will, I will use that uh, limiter on the channel strip sort of in front of other things. So, because I want that to, to, to catch that scream before it hits the compressor, because you don't want, I don't want that compressed sound because, because they're going to bury that compressor 20 dB and it's still going to have 20 more dB of limiting on it. If I can hit it 20 dB at the front, it's only going to hit the, the compressor another six dB. I, I think that goes back to keeping it at, at, at a nominal operating level. Correct, and that's what I'm doing. I'm basically doing live clip gain when I'm using that. Yeah, do, do, you, do you think that gets used in live sound as well? I don't know how many other people are doing that. I mean, what I'm doing is not too far from live sound, but for one of the artists where I had a very difficult time doing that, uh, that person pointed out to me, yes, I could never do that much limiting and that much makeup gain because my PA would feed back. He's like, I would, I would never get that amount of gain without feedback, what you're getting away with. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's kind of nice. <laughs> That's great. All right, so um, what about compression? That's, that's, that's something that I use on, on every single channel. 
Uh, I feel like we're always talking about yeah, compression. Yeah, well, because I think people are afraid to use compression. I know people that come out of recording schools, and they are afraid to hit a compressor. It's like as soon as that needle moves on a compressor, they feel like they're doing something wrong. When I'm cutting a vocal, that that I'm getting a little bit of compression on every single thing that that singer sings. And if they start singing a little too low, then I'm turning the gain up on the mic pre to get them back into the sweet spot of that compressor, to get it back to a nominal operating level. I'm, I'm you know, when it comes to mixing, you know, again, I come from like the school of SSL mixing, where not only was there a gate, I mean, you had a, you had a gate and a compressor on every channel, and you would turn the dynamics on on every channel, and you would turn the gate on, and you would add a little bit of compression to almost everything. Uh, to, to me, compression is something that, you know, it, it goes on every, it, it goes on practically, mm. unless, unless the sound doesn't need compression, it's most likely getting compressed. Like, I'm going to listen to it. And some, sometimes there's just, I hear a sound and I'm like, no, that sound doesn't need to compress. But more often than not, I am compressing, compressing that sound for sure, for sure. And it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's barely, the needle's barely moving. Most of the time I'm doing, an, I would say, like in a, not an extreme amount, but a generous amount of compression on every single, every single track. I think most people would agree, right? I don't know. It's some, I, I talk to especially newer engineers that are really afraid to, to hit a compressor. Uh, and then they wonder why their recordings don't sound like, you know, like pop record or polished recordings or, you know, like, uh, you know, recordings that they're used to listening to. Hmm. What do you guys think about that? Um, well, when I first was learning um, about compressors, I just, they were really a mystery to me. And certain aspects of them are still a mystery to me. Like I told Paul before, like his serial compression technique. I have no idea. I mean, I sort of get how it works, but I don't understand a lot of, you know, what he does with that and, like, how he's using, like, different compressors. I think it's something like he's using different compressors for, for, different, um, for different things. So one may oh, be yeah. to level something out, one may be for tone, and then using another compressor to bring something to the front because they are, like, multi-use tools. But um took me a minute to kind of understand that you know mostly the kind of general use for them is just to control the dynamics of something um and i never understood how it's like yeah but if the compressor is really supposed to like reduce level then how are things getting louder like when you're coming out of them and stuff like that i just didn't understand like how they're reducing gain but then you can also make something louder sort of thing but um really it's sort of just like I mean, that's like all in the makeup sort of thing. So you can like reduce, you know, like whatever 5 dB and then you'll add that 5 dB in later or you can, you know, add more than that and then it's going to get way louder or something like that. But when you're compressing something, I guess it does create this sort of like uh, feel that it's like more in your face, I guess, because it's less like dynamic. It, it is making stuff sound more in your face. I mean, when you talk about how you're making something quieter but it's making it louder what you're doing is you're making the loud sounds quieter and that is you know, and then you're bringing up the 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 makeup gain so the low sounds are getting if as you're bringing everything up the low sounds are getting louder and the loudest sounds are getting quieter to to, to talk about the serial compression thing is you know i think what you bring up is two points of you you can use a compressor in a very utilitarian sense where you're using it to limit the dynamic range but in a creative sense you're using it to make stuff sound more in your face you know, and maybe those two things are, you know, kind of, they're dependent on each other, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Like the sound of compression and the, the to describe a compressor as something to, to, 
to describe a compressor as something that that uh, limits the dynamic range or controls the dynamic range is not necessarily describing what the sound of a comp- what the what what the sound of a compressor is in a mix. Compressors are to bring stuff in more more you know closer to you or more present or more in your face. And you can also use them to set things back depending on the attack. If you use a very fast attack ratio, uh, you can have something just as loud, but it doesn't peak out as much because none of the transients are getting through. The, you know, to me, compression is more about controlling you know where stuff sits where stuff sits sonically in a mix in, in addition to EQ. Like compression is going to have a lot to do with the, the pre- I, I don't want to say presence because when I think presence, I start to think about high frequencies and EQ. I mean more like being present in a mix. It's the glue that holds everything together. A lot of people, well, it, when I was going to school, like I've had certain instructors tell me that if you can hear the compression that you're doing it wrong, they're wrong. <laughs> they are so fucking wrong. That's all I got to say. That then then they don't know how to make records. You know what I mean? That the, the, that is the most purest like most unbelievably purest way, way way to talk about compression. First of all, okay, let me say this in, in that defense. They say if you can hear the engineering, then there's something wrong with that record. Like you're not supposed to hear the engineer working. You're just supposed to be blown away by the end result. But I keep thinking of Red Hot Chili Sec- Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic, that album. And you could practically like in my mind because I know what an SSL looks like and and sounds like, you can hear the SSL G series and you could just see all the lights lit up on that console when you listen to that record. Cuz those sounds are so freaking compressed. Uh and there's I mean so many records. I mean I, you can just go through like I I could sit here and just name them all night. I'm not going to do that. You can just hear the compression. And if you listen to records that would be considered like purest records, and now I'm thinking of stuff like Steely Dan, which are very, very, those records sound like a band just stepped on stage and played those records. And those records are so pieced together. Uh, They were edited like crazy. They were comped like crazy. They were, you know, they were put together in a very surgical process. And it sounds like a band with a horn section got up and just played that song. Uh, Those records are compressed to death. Uh, in a very positive and good way. I mean, Roger Nichols knew what the hell he was doing when he made those records. Uh, and, you know, all the other guys that worked on it, too. I always think of, of Roger Nichols. Sure, you don't hear the compression, but those sounds are compressed. I mean, when, when you say, when you, when, if you hear the compressor working, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, if you hear, like, something that's compressed incorrectly, the idea of a compressor is to make it... it if you're using a compressor properly, yes, it's going to stay out of the way, and you're not going to, like you know, hear the compressor pumping or hear the compressor like really, you know, the, the, like if the attack time is really too quick and it's clamping down on all the transients or if it's too slow and it's letting all the transients through uh, and then it's, it's somehow messing with the sounds or if the release time is way too long and, you know, as, you know, you're hearing the compressor react to something that's not actually happening, then yeah, you're doing something wrong. But the sound of compression is the sound of, of making records, in, in my opinion. Uh, you know, so, okay, Here's here's one way to look at compression, in my opinion, because our brain compresses the sounds around us as well. Uh, there's a lot of ways to explain this, but this is the way I like to explain it. If you're in a stadium and everyone is clapping really loud, you just hear all those that raw roar of hand claps, and it doesn't necessarily sound like ridiculously loud. Or if a group of people are just clapping in a room, you know, it doesn't sound like overly loud. But if you're sitting there meditating for ten minutes, and somebody walks into the room and claps their hands just as loud. As when you were uh, as 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 they were when you were in that crowded room, 
you're probably going to jump and that hand clap is going to sound incredibly loud. Because when you're in that room of people that are clapping, your brain is lowering that sound, your perception of that sound. But as you're sitting there in that quiet room, your threshold of perception is dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. So now quiet sounds are going to sound extremely loud to you. That, that's one way to, to, to look at you know, how compression is, is, a, is a thing that our, our brains do and that our, our hearing mechanism does. But to say that when you, know, when you hear the, like, the sound of compression, like, just listen to any lead vocal on any record, and you, that is going to be compressed. That's go, it's going to be a compressed sounding vocal. It's not going to be a full dynamic range vocal, that's for damn sure. You're not going to hear the compressor acting wrong, but you are going to hear the fact that that vocal is compressed. Sorry, I just have to go on a bit of a, t a tirade there because I've heard that shit before where, where instructors say like, you know, th they, these, these people come out of recording schools and they're afraid to use a compressor. They act like if there's like two or three dB of, dB of compression, that's way too much. And I'm like, man, that's, that's, you know, three, three to six, nine dB of compression, like pretty consistently is pretty standard to me. Like I start to get worried when it's buried at like minus 20 or more. That's when I start to be like, okay, this is compressed too much. But I mean, when I'm cutting a vocal, that thing's every syllable, it, the compressor's hitting almost every syllable. If it's not, then I'm turning the mic pre-gain up. So it is hitting, hitting every syllable. That was great. Greg, I saw you laughing. Oh, I got a lot Sorry. of thoughts. <clears throat> I, didn't write, I didn't Say take it. any notes, but I think that the teachers are telling people to stay away from compression. I think compression is one of the last things that you learn as uh, as your ears develop as a young engineer, you can hear EQ, you can hear frequencies, and you can learn to dial in frequencies and dial out frequencies, things that you don't want, remove the things that you don't want, boost the things that you do want. When it comes to compression, your ear has to get dialed in and figure out what the hell is going on. Um, and there are some compressors that I, honestly, I can't hear. I... I, I Probably it's career suicide to say such things, but certain compressors, I hear, I see the meter move, I don't really hear what it's doing. Um, and one of the tricks that I have done. To, That's like that DBX 160X. Sorry, that thing is, sorry. Dude, I can taste that sorry. compression. Uh, I, I love that thing. Anyways, oh, sorry. I love it too. And uh, for example, I think that the, uh, the API. 225 uh, compressors, which are, they're, they're the little compressors that are built into the channels of uh, the newer API consoles. And I guess uh, they're based off of the 525, uh, which is the, you know, it's, it's a 20, 25 would be the model number, 500 would be a 500 rack, two, 200 would be a 200 rack. So, and then the API 2500, which is their big expensive stereo compressor, uh, is a lot of the same circuitry as the 525 and the 225, but in a big... And again, all three of those, I have a very difficult time hearing those things working until they reach extreme compression settings. The trick I've figured out to figure out what the hell they're doing is to multi-signal into it and knock one side, compress it, other side, don't compress it, knock them out of phase, and see what the sum and difference is as the compression's going on. And that's where I actually start to hear, oh, that's how the attack works. That's how the release works. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of one of those things. And I've worked with uh, plenty of tracks that people have sent me, and I've said it to people uh, 
you know, who send you kind of lousy tracks, you know, I can, there's only a couple of things you can, you can't undo. You can't undo printed reverbs and delays and you can't undo distortion and compression. You know, once it's there, you're either going to add more, you're going to deal with what's there, but you can't make it go away. And so I tend to caution people, you know, if you're, if you're going to record yourself and you're going to send me those tracks, you know what, I just assume you don't compress those tracks. Now, if you're trying to figure out how to do it yourself, that's fine. You, you can figure out how to compress on your own. But if you're sending it to me, I already know how to compress, I know what I want, and I don't want to work around what you've done. So th this goes goes back to like I think w when you keep talking about the needle, you're talking about the LA two A, yes? Uh, essentially, yes. I mean, but your your eleven seventy six will do this. You know, your if you else. have if you have a release if you have a release time that that's super long. Yeah. Now that to me, people always talk about an LA two A being like it's like the vocal compressor that all other vocal compressors are judged against. Yeah. That's been my biggest complaint about that thing is that it will do that thing where. If you hit it with a hard plosive or a hard transient or like one word that's kind of loud, you'll that meter will go back to like, you know, minus 10, minus 20 to be a compression and its recovery time is so slow. Now they're not not singing that word anymore and they're singing another word and you hear the compressor recovering as they're singing. Yes. That's I remember someone I this is many years ago they had someone just bought a the artist that I was mixing, they had just the person who tracked it had just bought a Manly Vox box mm -hmm. and they were all like psyched that they paid probably like i don't know that's probably many four, thousands seven, of dollars. four or five thousand dollar box yeah. yeah it was the rage for and, a little and, while and they were so pumped that they had recorded through this thing but the person had said it completely wrong and that basically it was the release time was set to a very very long release time probably something ridiculous like two seconds so every time they hit the compressor, you, you could literally hear like the, the entire phrase that they were singing getting slightly louder the entire time. Yeah. So that maybe goes back to what Dasan is saying. If you hear the compressor work, that's not hearing the compressor working. That's hearing the compressor wrong. That's hearing the compressor not working. But that's, herein you know, lies if, if, the problem. That person couldn't hear what was going on. They, they were just pumped that they had a you know, right. $5,000. Yeah. And, and therein lies the problem and, and why we caution people against compressing because you can't undo that so you're stuck with got, it got, got to use clip gain you got you yeah if you can use clip gain Something with like a that. line you know you got you got to you got to draw that draw yeah. the inverse of that line yep but yeah i think that's one of those things where you know people will set a release time that's too long or it's or it's a, a, a an optical compressor that that tends to have that really long release time and you you can hear it working Conversely, you'll have people that'll set a really short release time and then they're bringing up the room around them. So you're hearing like the room pumping. And so again, these are all things that like, maybe they don't notice in the tracking, but you hear it in the mix. If you're the, if you're the hired mix engineer or you're a guy that, you know, records yourself and you're like, why does my room sound like such shit? Why does my room sound so so reverberant? It doesn't sound that reverberant when I'm talking. Well, maybe look at your compressor settings. What are you doing to yourself? I find uh, mixing more and more jazz at Eastman, I am really embracing this purist approach where I really don't compress much. Uh, I will I will set 
I'll basically normalize my mix bus. I might occasionally put something across the mix bus and hit it, but I don't like to. Uh, because what'll happen is maybe the loudest note isn't necessarily like, you know, like if you compress like a, a, a pop track, it's usually compressing on your drums. You know, it's your kick, it's your, it's your snare. But when, when I'm doing this jazz stuff, uh, you know, the loudest thing isn't necessarily, the, you know, a kick and a snare. It's, you know, it might be a saxophone note. And then, you know, everyone's playing in a reverberant space. And when I start um, messing with the dynamics, especially the overall dynamics, it messes with the, with the natural tail of the reverberation. And I've, I've, you know, it's, it's tying my hands where I can't get away with certain things because you can, you can hear the reverberation of the room pumping with whatever compression I'm doing. Uh, I will tend to do a lot more gentle stuff and do a little more, uh, clip gain, a little more mixing, a little more automation. Good say you're probably doing way more like console mixing to eliminate, uh, like dynamic range issues. Yeah. And to like, some degree, you know. the bleed kind of makes it happen. Like y your hands are tied with the bleed. So you're doing, you're doing less and... I'm doing less and I'm finding I, uh, the band is doing more is really what it comes down to. If the band can blend themselves, it's going to sound freaking great. And if the band can't blend themselves, I'm sorry, sir, but your recording just didn't come out as good as some of the others that I've done. When I'm doing the broadcast stuff, uh, often there's someone downstream of me who is controlling my mix before it goes out to air. And that person almost always has a limiter strapped across their two mix. Um, and so I find myself, uh, I'll, I'll work, well, there's two ways you can work. I can listen to the output of their board and make my mix adjustments based on what I hear through their limiters. Or I can do my mix based on what I hear leaving my room and I'm just going to trust that I'm shipping gold and whatever happens on the other end, not my problem. Um, and, um, the part where I just trust what I'm doing, uh, it's easier to sleep at night. Um, and mixing through someone else's compression is a little more frustrating, but at the same time, I get close. I, Obviously, what hits air is what I've done, so I can still, but I just find myself just burying, you know, like I'll lean harder into a lead vocal or I'll lean harder into a guitar solo because I can hear the compressor clamping down on my mix, and often they're adding audience or something into that, and I'm trying to cl clear up my mix and sort of beat the audience mics into submission. And basically, if if I can push something in my mix louder, it's going to push the overall compression down, which is going to bring down the audience in their mix until the engineer, until the engineer at the other end says, dude, back off a little bit. Well, I have to go actually meet with a music journalist. So I'll see you guys later. Um, I'll probably be on next time. So yeah, get ready for that. But awesome. Right Talk yeah. soon, man. All right. Good to see yeah, you. Yeah. See have you, a man. Meeting. All right, so yeah. let's wrap it up here. I thought we talked about a lot of great stuff, and uh, yeah, we're signing off. To, to be continued. To, to be episode continued. four. Yeah, episode four. Right on.
See ya. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. The Pro Fools Podcast is brought to you by The Residence Studios. The Residence Studios is a destination studio located in central Long Island, one hour from Manhattan, one hour to the Hamptons. We offer a state-of-the-art recording and mixing studio, photo and video facilities with hotel-like amenities, five minutes from the beach and minutes away from Long Island's major attractions. Contact us at theresidencestudios at gmail.com or Instagram at theresidencestudios. I hope you've enjoyed the Pro Fools podcast as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. There's no one right answer on how to make a great recording. To make great recordings, you must do your best and work your hardest. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, but be sure to quickly get over them and most importantly, learn from them. Because a wise man knows what a fool he's been. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on the bell so you can be notified when we post on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can donate via PayPal at theprofoolspodcast at gmail.com and at theprofoolspodcast at Patreon. Email us, questions and otherwise, at theprofoolspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, theprofoolspodcast.com.